0: Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper. I'm the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt. And i um, pleased to see you here. we hope a few more people will show up because we have a great afternoon for, um, scheduled here for you. We um, would like to thank the Hearing and Speech Agency for providing interpreters for this event this afternoon. So this afternoon, we are pleased to welcome Rob Ruck, who's see there on your left, and Neil Langto. Um, Neil teaches modern American history at the University of Delaware, and he has written um, his new book, I won't tell you about all the others, he can tell you about those. His new book is Campy, The Two Lives of Roy Campanella, and it's the first biography of the Dodger great in decades and the most authoritative ever published. Um, Rob Ruck teaches at the University of Pittsburgh and he's the author of um, uh, the new book, uh, Race Ball, How the Major Leagues Colonized the Black and Latino Game. Um, We welcome them both to Baltimore and here to sort of moderate the conversation with um, Rob and Neil is Mike Gibbons, who's the executive director of Sports Legends Museum down by Camden Yards. We hope you all go down and and visit Mike down there at the Inner Harbor. So um, I'll turn it over to all of you. Okay.
1: Uh, Thank you, Judy. Uh, My name is Mike Gibbons as she said and you know I was uh, as a, a little bit of a preamble I was uh, out this morning in my yard mowing my elegant city leaves and um, noting what kind of what a beautiful day it is a beautiful november day and and i'm I'm wondering why am I going downtown um, <laughs> with uh, just having come off of a landmark football game last night with LSU beating Alabama and anticipating this huge game tonight between Baltimore and Pittsburgh, and why am I going downtown to do a baseball program um, in the middle of all this? And, of course, the answer is easy. The answer is that uh, there's always time for baseball. Uh, we had a, a sports writer here in, in Baltimore uh, by the name of John Stedman, and John Stedman once remarked that baseball is the greatest game that God ever invented and uh, and uh, of course he's right the game more than any other is uh, is held up as a metaphor to american culture over and over and over again and, and indeed it has taken a lead role in the the, the continuing evolution of our culture especially when it comes to minorities and and uh, and getting minorities involved and working all of that out and baseball certainly is to be applauded for the role that it has taken um when i first started work at the museum about 30 years ago i didn't know much if anything about the negro leagues i don't know about you guys but or you but I don't think that there was, certainly 30 years ago, much of an awareness that there were Negro Leagues, that there was a separation um, in sport between blacks and whites. Um, so over these past 30 years, I have been privileged, if not honored, to have met and interviewed some of uh, the local guys who were involved with uh, Baltimore's Negro League history. Uh, we had Sam Lacey, who was a, a writer for the Afro-American and Jackie Robinson's roommate in 1947 with the Dodgers. We had Dick Powell who was the last GM for the for the Elite Giants and then a guy named Jim Brady. Jim Brady worked for the Baltimore Sun. He just died uh, a couple of weeks ago. I went to his funeral yesterday and, and Jim, um, when I first got involved with the museum, took me through this history and said, you've got to learn about Negro League history and here's what you read, here is who you speak with, and that that kind of stuff. So, um, today at Sports Legends, we have an exhibit on Baltimore's two Negro League teams, the Black Sox and the Elite Giants. And it is the greatest educational teaching tool that we have at the museum, a place where we can bring young people and old people and say, our country was segregated, here's what it looked like, let's talk about it a little bit, uh, if not a lot of it. And so um, uh, I think that uh, today I was excited to come down and hear what these guys have to say because they have invested a big hunk of their time, of their lives in exploring uh, segregation, baseball, Negro Leagues, all these things, and we're going to be talking with them right now because you know what? What, uh, what I found out in reading up on these fellows is uh, what we kind of know. Baseball is a brutal business in many ways, and certainly it, is, it was uh, with uh, Negro Leagues and with Latinos today, and so we're going to ask Neil and Rob to talk about that a little bit. So gentlemen, um, now that I've, I've done that, I wanna start off by just asking you to, uh, to talk with us about how did you um, get lured into researching and developing your, your topics on, on uh, Negro Leagues and, uh, and, and minorities in baseball. you want to start, Rob? Sure. Um, thank you,
2: Mike. Thank you, Judy. Uh, thanks for coming. Um, you know, about the time you were saying you were first finding out about this history, which had been largely forgotten, I was um, no longer driving a cab in Pittsburgh. It started grad school back in the late 1970s and a very good buddy of mine and I were running one day in Shenley Park next to the campus at the University of Pittsburgh. And there's a place where we'd gone on a very long run. There were places you could look down and see both um, the Homestead works of U.S. Steel and the Jones and Laughlin works on the south side. And uh, Norris and I, my friend, started talking about the fact that there used to be a baseball team associated with the Homestead Steelworks called the Homestead Grays. And Norris, who was African-American, said he had grown up hearing stories about cool Papa Bell and being told as a kid he should be a Jackie Robinson. I had vaguely heard about that, but we were both kind of surprised. Given our interest in sport, we didn't know more. We went to the library, and there's essentially uh, two books, one by Bob Peterson called Only the Ball Was White, and one was a set of um, interviews that John Hallway had turned into vignettes. So I started looking at the role that sport had played in the black community in Pittsburgh prior to integration, uh, looking at the old Sandlot and Negro League teams, the Grays and the Crawfords. And what struck me was that in many ways, sport played far more important roles in the coming together and creation of a black community then than it did in later years, providing cohesion after the very disruptive years of the great migration out of the South, Uh, providing African-Americans a chance to define who they were with competence and grace at a time where opportunities in the workplace, politically and educationally, were limited. And on the sandlots, providing a very important bridge to the white community, because even though the major leagues were separated, black teams played white teams all the time. Uh, And and very briefly, writing about sport in the black community, uh, a book called Sandlot Seasons, led me into the Caribbean. Because so many of these guys had played ball down there. So I wrote a book about baseball in the Dominican Republic, then did a couple of documentaries, and then sort of brought them together in this current book, Raceball.
1: Okay. And, and Neil, uh, before you wrote Campy, you, uh, you authored a book, um, Negro League Baseball, The Rise and Ruin of the Black Institution. Uh, so was that your first uh, interest
3: in, in this area? Um. I don't know if you might need a microphone, but uh, my story is a little bit different. I grew up as a great baseball fan as a kid, and I also loved history, and as an adult, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I graduated from, when I got my undergraduate degree in English, which of course is often difficult to parlay that into anything meaningful. <laughs> uh, and in the meantime, I was looking for something to do after I graduated from college, and I saw an ad from a gentleman named John Holway, who Rob just mentioned, who was looking for someone to do statistical work. He wanted someone to actually go in and look at the old black newspapers in Philadelphia and photocopy them for some work he was doing. And that was my first real exposure to the Negro Leagues. I never knew much about them up to that point, even as a, a, a huge baseball fan and a baseball historian I was, even at that age. I'd never known there was this whole world of baseball out there, of these great players. And also there was a whole world of African American life that I didn't know much about and that's what got me interested in, in the subject just by doing that little project when I was about 20, 22 years old. And then when I went to graduate school I had some instructors who I told about and they encouraged me to pursue it more. I also read Rob's book, Sandlot Seasons, great book. And that encouraged me also to pursue it more as an academic, uh, po- that there were academic possibilities in this. So I did my master's thesis on the Hilldale Baseball Club, which was the Philadelphia Negro League Club in the 20s and 30s. And then I went back to graduate school and did my PhD on Negro League Baseball, which I turned into my second book, Negro League Baseball, The Rise of a Black Institution. And then the new book, the Roy Campanella book, was just an offshoot of trying to, you know, find a new project to do. And Campanella was someone who I thought was uh, a very marketable figure who had a great story, so much going on in his life. He was uh, a, a professional ball player at 15. He was biracial. He was paralyzed in an accident. There was just a lot there. And they hadn't made anything written on him in years. And that's what got me to... Uh, take on that project and write the book.
1: Hey, Rob, when um, you were working on baseball, uh, you know, there's baseball has had um, a storied past when it comes to labor relations. It's always been uh, cantankerous at best. There's been a lot of problems um, from time to time. The federal leagues, uh, you know, came mm-hmm. along as a challenge to the major. Just all kind of things going on. But specifically, Um, It seems exacerbated when you get to black players and Latinos, like like the labor relations there. They are used by the game more than than white players were. Is that that true? Is that what you're finding? Is
2: is your question whether African American and Latino players are more exploited by the teams? Um, You know, right now, it would be kind of hard to make that argument if you look at the list of the best paid players in the game where even though African Americans only make up about 8% and Latinos 27% today, um, they're disproportionately among the higher paid players now. I don't know if anybody's ever looked and broken it down throughout the ranks. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that uh, if you go back to the 40s when first the Dodgers integrate, Major League Baseball is very slow to bring in black and Latin players. It took 12 years before every club finally had at least one black player. They lagged behind both the National Football League and the NBA in terms of the percentages. And I think that there was undoubtedly um, a lot of discrimination against black and Latin players for several decades. And those who've done statistical analysis show that um, if you were – a bench player, a utility player, uh, a fifth starter. um, The chances were you're going to be white, that black and Latin guys are not going to get those jobs. Now, I'm not sure if that level of discrimination plays out as much today. I think the more profound level of discrimination was simply that um, front offices paid no attention to bringing in African-Americans, Latinos as coaches and front office people. A lot of the clubs were uh, reticent to challenge, reluctant to challenge uh, racial discrimination in the South, particularly with their minor league clubs, where if you're a black ball player in the 50s and 60s, going down to the South was a brutal experience. Um, You know, I I think that the discrimination played out in that way. Um, You know, I I think that you've certainly seen baseball since 1987 when they were humiliated on the Nightline show when Al Campanis and Ted Koppel uh, discussed the integration of baseball. Campanis was the Dodgers GM and Ted Koppel is asking him why 40 years after the integration of baseball are there so few African-Americans in the front office or managing? He had no answer. Baseball has done a reasonable job since then in that regard. Of course there are very few black players left in the game. That's been the flip side of that story.
1: Neil, with uh, with your guy, Roy Campanella, he gets into, uh, you know, he's in the Negro Leagues, and then he makes the transition to Major League Baseball. How difficult was was it for him when when he got up to the big leagues, um, you know, from a race relations standpoint? Was, was it really rough? And, and then take us all the way through until uh, after he has the accident, he comes back to Yankee Stadium and, the, and is treated like an icon in
3: well, a couple of things, a couple of things that Rob talked about, which is the, the difficulties that they faced in the South in the 50s. I mean, Campanella, just skipping ahead of Campanella for a second. Uh, I have a quote in my book, Jackie Robinson said, I, I should be paid more just for the aggravations I have to put up with playing in the South in spring training every single year. Campy and Jackie and all the black Dodgers in the 50s. Had to stay at separate hotels. Had to be uh, they'd go back in the back to be fed at restaurants and things like that. And that was just part of the drill. And some of that was the Dodgers' fault. I mean, Branch Rickey, for example, he wanted those lucrative exhibition games played in the South in spring training. So they would go. They they worked their way north at the end of spring training from Florida, and then they'd play in all these towns in South Carolina, and they'd play in Atlanta, and they'd play in Texas. And each each uh, stop along the way was extremely. Um, very hostile in most cases to to blacks just being on the same field. These were towns that did not have integration of any kind, that even integration on the ball field was a huge thing. It was actually, in some cases, the Dodgers were the first to to integrate uh, a a town as far as uh, um, sports are concerned. Coming back to Campy, Campy, um, it wasn't that difficult for him from a a baseball playing perspective because he had been playing ball his whole life. He started playing professional baseball at the age of 15, which is just so remarkable. And he he was such a great player in the Negro Leagues and had so much experience there. So he could handle what the Major Leagues had to offer. But he did face a lot of uh, racial stuff, maybe not quite as much as Jackie, but when Campy was in the minors in 47, Jackie was in Brooklyn. And... I talked to some players who were his teammates, He played, in Mon- Campy played in Montreal in 47, he said he took as much abuse as Jackie did in the majors that year. There was a lot of uh, racial slurs thrown at him and Campy just took it, he just had to play and he had that ability to sort of t- tune things out. And when he got to the majors there were difficulties in that he was a catcher and was expected to work with you know, all white pitching staff, at least until Newcomb came along in 49. And some of these white pitchers would not take his signals. There's a story that Campy would told about Hugh Casey, who was a Southerner. Uh, Hugh Casey basically said, uh, you know, he would not take what Campy put down. So Campy said, well, throw what you want. I'll, I'll catch it. Uh, so, I mean, that's the kind of thing he did have to, he had to win over some of these guys. And what helped was that Ricky, Branch Ricky, would get rid of people, I think, who were not going to sign on to the great experiment. So that, that helped. And I think as years went on, the black Bears became more accepted. But... Even saying that, there's a picture in my book of Campy heading to the mound with a bat in his hand going after Lou Burdette, The Lou Burdette called him a nigger. I mean, so th- this is in 1953. This was still going on, and Campy was a very, very even-tempered guy who had to be really provoked. So uh, it was tough. I mean, I think throughout the 50s, and I think by the 60s, the real hostility started to die off. where it became more subtle, which I think Rob would attest to, it, as far as just keeping blacks out of the front offices and, and quotas, informal quotas, I think, being set up in baseball as far as how many you have it on team. And if you do have black players, they've got to be the starters. They're not the fringe players and things like that. You know, and it, and it, it wasn't just baseball. Uh,
1: Baltimore was a brutal town.
3: Yeah, I didn't just want to mention it. that. There were some stories with <laughs> Baltimore was tough, actually. Baltimore
1: was a, a southern city. And, uh, and, and there, are, there are lots of stories of Montreal coming in to play, the Elites or, or, or whatever, and just uh, rough times, very, very, very rough times. Um, and it, it also flopped over into football. In 1958, the Baltimore Colts um, had several black players and they went to New York to play the Giants in the greatest game ever played. And the, uh, the black players were told that they could not stay in the hotel with, with the white players for the championship of the NFL. And the uh, the Colts said, uh-uh, if they don't uh, stay here, we don't stay here. And and they got the hotel to change. But it, it was rough uh, in the late 50s with a big game on the line. It didn't matter. You know, it was, it was just rough, even up in New York. So so that was, uh, you know, that was tough times. Um, Rob, you talked about the fact that Blacks only make up about 8%. Uh, Is this cyclical? Is it going to change? What's going on here?
2: I don't think it's going to change. Um, You know, after Jackie Robinson and Campanella, who wins three MVP awards in a couple of years, it seems, uh, enter the majors, it's it's the greatest fresh wave of talent the game had ever seen. And there's a generation of ballplayers who had, come up in the Negro Leagues, who make it to the majors, then another younger generation of younger African Americans who have been growing up on the sandlots when these guys make it, who are their role models. That leads to an amazing number of black ballplayers by the late 70s, something like 27%. But then it begins to decline. Now, I, I think the first thing that causes that is that the destruction of the Negro Leagues and the Sandlots, and the Sandlots in both white and black communities are dying in the late 40s and 50s due to television and suburbanization. That means that the infrastructure through which young African-American ballplayers learn how to play the game, acquire the muscle memory, uh, that's gone. So they then have to come up in the minors, which we've discussed as being problematic. Meanwhile, in the 50s, you have the colleges and universities in many parts of the country opening the doors to African-Americans to play football and basketball with the scholarship. Uh, that's a much better deal than playing minor league baseball at that point in time. And there's a real premium on getting that education. I think in later years, the player procurement system in baseball shifts after the impl- Uh, the institution of the draft, I think in 1965, um, by the 90s, two out of every three kids drafted is being drafted out of the colleges. Well, there are very few African Americans playing college baseball on scholarship. Um, Stats I've seen show about 5%, much, much smaller than in basketball or football. Uh, in part because a college baseball scholarship is a partial ride. A baseball team gets 11.7 scholarships that are divided among 20 or 30 players. So an African-American athlete with talent who needs the scholarship is going to gravitate to other sports. Add to that um, the disintegration of families. You get white, black, Latino kids growing up in this country without fathers in the household teaching them the love and lore of the game. And then the switch in baseball in more recent times that after Little League if you want to keep playing and eventually get that college scholarship you've got to be on a travel team or something and that can cost a couple of thousand bucks to do. So when everybody wants to be like Mike or LeBron or Kobe um, the attention of the black community has shifted. Uh, Polls show that Major League Baseball Lags well behind other sports in popularity among African Americans, and I think there's there's basically a disconnect. I mean, last fall uh, there were more African Americans elected as Republicans to Congress than appeared in the World Series, two to one.
1: Pretty interesting, <laughs> for sure. Neil, what kind of a role has baseball played, in your opinion? In in helping the American culture, the American community come together, you know. By my way of, of thinking, I've been watching the game for a long time, and it seems to me that the game puts players with different backgrounds on the field together, and they they start to form partnerships because they're being paid to play the game. Uh, we watch the partnerships. We watch blacks and Latinos and whites work together for the common good of all. Um, and it, it appears that our country is doing better racially. It seems that, uh, that the, the, the lines are being softened uh, between, you know, by race. Uh, right now, probably um, economics is the biggest divider, not race anymore. What kind of a role has baseball
3: played to, uh, to impact on today the way we see it? Well, I think you really see that impact in the 1930s and 1940s, and you see it in, in sports in general, I think with Jesse Owens at the Olympics in '36, and then with Joe Lewis, and then with Jackie Robinson. I think the three of them together were enormously important in breaking down some of the, the really extreme prejudice there was in America at the time. Uh, if we want to tie it to only to baseball, I mean, Jackie Robinson is so enormously important. After, in you know, post-war America is when you're seeing some breakthroughs in the black community as far as civil rights are concerned, But Robinson going to a white team and being a success and being well-liked by the fans and being well-liked by his teammates, and this whole – it's a whole symbol of integration. I mean, and I think that was so, so important at the time. And and baseball at the time was the American game. It was America's game in those days. So the fact he was doing it in what was then considered the major sport, it was so important. So I think that's what baseball has done. I think – in that period when integration was beginning, that baseball was among the forefront. As far as today is concerned, I mean, all sports are integrated. I think we all have different different groups in each game. We have different, different countries, and I think that's a good representation. But I don't think it's quite as important as it was in the 1930s and 40s when um, the racial situation in our country was much worse.
2: If I could add to that, um, going back a little earlier, I think – back when baseball was the national pastime, it's the arena in which any immigrant boy can become American. That if you can make it on the sandlots, baseball and sports considered a meritocracy, that means you're worthy, really, of being an American, worthy of citizenship. Now, the great contradiction a 100 years ago is that African Americans are being excluded from that arena that defines citizenship, and I think reinforces the uh, racialist attitudes of social Darwinism, considering African-Americans naturally inferior, sort of a flip of the popular wisdom of today when most people would say African-Americans are naturally superior athletes. You know, both I think are, are fairly off base. Um, but I think that that reinforces the importance of the denial of the exclusion the significance of that for african americans and you know then as as neil points out when jesse joe and jackie overcome those hurdles it makes it even more significant
1: you talked about uh, the money aspect of the decision to integrate baseball branch ricky i mean it, he it, he wasn't necessarily bringing jackie and ultimately others in because he was a good guy well, <laughs> Talk about that. Was it mostly the money?
2: You know, I'm not going to ever quite understand a complex man like Branch Rickey and why he did what he did. I think he had sincere uh, ethical and moral reasons for wanting to integrate the game. But I think it was a very astute baseball decision both on and off the field. I mean, the Dodgers were the first to tap into this amazing cohort of both black and Latin talent that nobody else got. And they won all those pennants as a result. Um, the Dodgers also set attendance records with Jackie Robinson. The Pittsburgh Courier newspaper uh, said Jackie's nimble, Jackie's quick, Jackie makes the turnstiles click. <laughs> and that was true uh, on the road and at home. I mean, when he came to play in Pittsburgh, hundreds of African Americans came down in mass from the Hill to watch him play. And, you know, there were Jackie Robinson specials. Uh, you know, and so Ricky was very smart at the gate as well as on the field.
1: Hey, Neil, uh, in your in your book Campy, when you're talking about Campanella uh, in his Negro League days, there's a there's a business side to the Negro Leagues too. It's it's dollars and cents back then uh, for those teams, for those managers, for those owners. Talk about that a little bit. It, w- it was economic driven, wasn't it?
3: It was, and for those of you who are not aware, Campy did play in Baltimore for, for several years. He actually broke in as a 15-year-old with was which with, with the team that was then called the Washington Elite Giants. Uh, the Elite Giants had some trouble. They started in Nashville, went to Columbus, went to Detroit, went to Washington, and then finally settled in Baltimore in 1938. So Campy then spent the rest of his Negro League career in Baltimore. Um, I've written a, a, a bunch about the economics of the Negro Leagues. The second book I did, Negro League Baseball, got into this issue. Um, the Negro Leagues were quite a business, I mean, they, particularly during the 1940s, during World War II, I mean, they became probably one of the top two or three black businesses in the country. You might want to throw the insurance companies in there and maybe uh, uh, the banks or something like that. But they were making a lot of money during World War II. Um, and they they could only exist when segregation existed. That was the problem that they faced. And coming back to what Rob just said about Jackie Robinson, I mean, Once Jackie Robinson integrates the major leagues in 1947 and you have all these Jackie Robinson specials and and the black community in America is just going absolutely crazy over Jackie Robinson and, and following his every move, no one's going to the Negro Leagues anymore. And the Negro Leagues are going to die a very slow death because of integration. I mean, and that's another thing that's going to sort of, as I think Rob mentioned, will help to turn off the talent pool that was being developed Uh, The Negro Leagues developed that time, mean, they did develop a few players after integration occurred. I mean Hank Aaron and Willie Mays and Ernie Banks came along after in the early 50s, but uh, the Negro Leagues were always, they were were run on a shoestring budget. They were kind of held together with spit and chewing gum and wire. Uh, In a few years they did profit during the 1940s, but usually they just didn't have the money in most cases. They didn't have the money, they didn't have the parks. Uh, and I think it's amazing, one of the things I talk about in, in, in the last book I did, is how they existed so long with so little finance behind them and depending on a very poor community to support them. I mean, they were trying to build a business on the backs of very poor people, as most African Americans were in the 1930s and 40s and 20s. So um, so it's actually a, it's a great business achievement. They lasted as long as they did and, of course, a great social achievement for the things they accomplished and economically as well.
1: Were, were uh, Negro League teams in their heyday did they draw well were they supported uh, by the community by the black communities and how about uh, the white community
3: i think it de- it depends on, on the year you're talking about um, there were years during world war ii during the war uh, the negro league teams were outdrawing the major league teams uh, in a place like baltimore during world war ii um, Elite giants were playing at bugle field and i think they played sometimes at oriole park but they would draw six seven eight thousand fans on a sunday which was not bad at all and it was You know, and they they often had to, I mean, in Baltimore, I think they usually had to park on Sunday, so that was pretty good. But uh, I live in the Philadelphia area, you look at the Philadelphia Stars who would play, they would get Shy Park on a Monday, the worst night of the week, you know, to get a park. And they would draw 10, 15,000 fans at a time when the Philadelphia A's and Phillies were drawing 3,000 fans. Wow! So during World War II, they drew outstandingly well, and there were other times too. Rob could tell you about it. the Crawfords in Pittsburgh drew very well at times in the 30s and in the 20s. Also, uh, different teams drew well, but you know, generally from time to time, it was very hard for the Negro leagues because of what I just said of trying to build on the backs of very poor people. And if the economy in America is not good, the black community is going to be the first to be fired and the last to be hired in the first place. So they cannot go out and support a team. It's Hard for them Mm -hmm. so um so as i say, it was a struggle for a lot of these entrepreneurs and a lot of them i think got into for the love of the game or or why people get into owning teams now it's fun not because they thought they're going to make a lot of money or in some cases they were money laundering as rob could tell (laughs) (laughs) us with with the crawford some of the guys run some of the guys involved in the Negroes were running numbers and things like that but um yeah i think there's there's a there's a great business story in there as well it's not just the uh the players themselves who are of course unbelievably talented but uh there's another side of it yeah, that's
1: right. Wait, and you, uh, he alluded to Pittsburgh, and you had two marquee teams up there. How did, they, how did they draw? Well,
2: first I'd say if you want to read the best book ever written about the economics and business of the Negro Leagues, it's Neil's second book, um, which, no, really. I mean, I reviewed that book for, I guess it was Penn, University of Pennsylvania. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I was astounded because when I had done my work, I don't know, a decade or more before that, I mean, I couldn't find anything like what Neil was finding to write this, and it was just boggled my mind. Um, You know, Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, I think, is an interesting black community. Um, It's not that big compared to a lot of other black communities, but it was centrally located on the rail lines. So anybody going east, west, west, west-east had to come through Pittsburgh, and whether it's a ball club or a performer, you know, it's the Chitlin Circuit. You stop and play in Pittsburgh. So Pittsburgh, particularly the Hill, which is the center of the black community, uh, was extremely well-known for jazz musicians like Billy Eckstein and Mary Lou Williams. Um, But also, it had two black-owned ball clubs, uh, the Homestead Grays, who were formed by black steelworkers in 1900; the Pittsburgh Crawfords, who were sons of the Great Migration, who get their name when they uh, represent a uh, local library in a city league in the 1920s. The latter team is taken over eventually by this guy Gus Greenlee who had the Crawford Grill and was a numbers king in Pittsburgh. Uh, The Homestead Grays are eventually owned by Cumberland Posey who played for them, was a great athlete, eventually became their owner. In the 30s I think they did make Pittsburgh the center of black baseball. you had not only two teams, but you had cool Papa Bell flying around the base pass, uh, Josh Gibson hitting balls further than anybody had ever seen before, and Satchel Paige, the great performer, walking the bases loaded on purpose, telling his fielders to sit down and striking out the side. Um, <laughs> you know, it, was, it was quite an attraction. Um, they drew reasonably well. Uh, But as Neil said, this was run on a shoestring, and uh, this was the Depression. And um, I think in many ways the only reasons these clubs survived in a lot of cities was that the numbers men subsidized them. It was their way of giving back to the community. At least in Pittsburgh, um, most of the numbers men were pretty good people, the source of a lot of loans to people to pay the rent and for a doctor's bill or something like that. Um, They were also very tied in, in Pittsburgh, uh, the teams with Art Rooney of the Pittsburgh Steelers who would come to their aid financially if need be. But, you know, they were were a business, but they were much more important, I think, as a community institution than as a business.
1: Neil was talking about what happened uh, to the Negro Leagues when Major League Baseball started taking the the star players and, and the demise took... You know, six or seven years, and they were gone pretty much. Uh, in your book, you talk about Major League Baseball going into Caribbean uh, territory and starting to pluck out the talented players and leaving the communities with nothing. And and all of a sudden, you see uh, uh, the Puerto Rican leagues or things start to go away. Winter winter leagues go away. What's going on with that? Well,
2: it's been an up-and-down story. I mean, unlike uh, black America, where integration ultimately destroys the Negro Leagues and black-controlled sport, uh, it's a lot harder for Major League Baseball to control what's going on in different countries that are so far away with language differences and the like. Um, For a while after integration, because you'd always have white and black ball players from the states going down and playing winter ball, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, winter league baseball did really well. Um, in the 80s, you started to see salaries go up, and the major league teams tell players, we don't want you to play winter ball, you might get hurt. Some guys would play anyway, because they felt that not playing there would be insulting their people. Um, the most interesting development to me is the emergence of the academies in Latin America, particularly in the Dominican Republic, uh, starting in the 1980s a couple of ball clubs built academies the first one was a ramshackle affair run by the Blue Jays Uh, I went there in the 80s and I got lost and I found myself in the Santo Domingo City dump Mm -hmm. where you see hordes of people with kerchiefs over their mouth scavenging to support themselves now if you're a ball player and that's the alternative that's quite an incentive to make it right now Every major league team has an academy, most of which cost about $5 million to build in the Dominican Republic. Some have those in Venezuela. In the DR, there are 3,000 17, 18, 19-year-olds who live at these academies and play in the Dominican Summer League. It's the lowest rung of professional baseball. That's where the ballplayers that you see from the DR are coming out of. Now... Unfortunately, because baseball has become a billion dollar business down there in terms of three or four hundred million dollars in signing bonuses every year, the academies, the winter leagues, the summer league, and of course the salaries, uh, it's encouraged trafficking in youth. And kids in the Caribbean, except for Puerto Rico, are not eligible for the international baseball draft every year. Baseball. Uh, which means they start their careers as free agents, but they can't be signed until the year they turn 17, after the Blue Jay signed a 13-year-old a number of years ago and took a lot of heat for that. So what's happened is the combination of these two ro- rules has meant that there are these agents who get their hooks into kids when they're 13, 14, 15 years old, called boscones. And they take care of them, they feed them, they train them, they give them medical care, And the year they turn 17, they shop them to the major league teams and try to drive up their bonuses. Now, some of these boscones are the best things that ever happened to kids. Others of them uh, feed them steroids. They say they're B12 shots. Uh, They they suggest they lie about their age because teams think that the younger you are, the higher upside you have. And then they'll take 30% of their salary and signing bonus. Uh, So it's, it's become a a difficult situation and a lot of these kids are exploited uh, most obviously don't make the majors a lot of them get ripped off and then get discarded.
1: Right and when and when they uh, don't make it in baseball after they've spent all of their youth trying to make it they've got nothing. down. down well the sure
2: park, right? I mean if, if you're 14 years old and you show a lot of talent in baseball and a Boscone gets you you're probably not going to school anymore and you don't have a lot to fall back on. Now, uh, it's not like there's a lot to fall back on in a lot of situations to begin with. So that signing bonus, which has gone up now to the twenty dollars to $50,000 range, is much more money than their family has ever seen at one time, ever, in that family's history. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to say no if, if that's the shot.
1: Neil, here in Baltimore, Cal Ripken and his brother Billy... Have been uh, working for the last several years uh, to generate enough money to uh, go into different neighborhoods and put uh, improved playing conditions and good playing fields. Now they're doing it; they're expanding it, so it's going going out across the country. Um, with efforts like Ripken and with reviving baseball in the inner cities, the RBI programs is the game. Uh, reaching out in meaningful ways to try and re-engage uh, you know, the different neighborhoods of America.
3: I think it's a very difficult thing, and if we're talking about African Americans in particular, I mean, looking at someone like Roy Campanella, when he grew up in the 1930s in Philadelphia, I mean, the kids were on the sandlots, as, as, as Rob already mentioned. I mean, they they go out there you know, in the morning <laughs> on, on a weekday and, be, and come back at night. they'd play all day by themselves and everyone wanted to play baseball, and then they would, when they got old enough, they they'd move into the in the semi pros and then they might go higher than that. And it's just what they did. and now there's just been a, a real cultural shift in America as far as as far as what people do. I don't know much more baseball can do. I think the reviving baseball in the inner cities type of thing has probably helped. There have been some players that have developed there um but i think one of the biggest things what rob mentioned the scholarship issue as far as if you're an african-american kid any talent uh why not go for something that might give you a scholarship number one and i think culturally i think a lot of black kids grow up thinking that baseball is not cool it's Mm -hmm. just not their game they don't they don't see enough black kids having said that i live in philadelphia and i've you know in the last few years at phillies games i have seen a lot more black fans than i've ever seen before because of because of i think they have more blacks on their team they've got jimmy rollins and they've got um, Ryan Howard and a few others. So, I mean, I think it's an untapped market. Um, will we ever see what we saw in 1975, that figure you threw at, what was it, 25% Rob that they had in the major leagues, African Americans? I don't know if we'll ever see that again. Mm-hmm. The other question is whether it's a bad thing or not. If, if black athletes are playing in professional <laughs> sports somewhere, does it make any difference if they're playing in football, baseball, uh, or basketball? I love baseball. I'd like to see them in baseball, obviously. But I think if Jackie Robinson were here today, he'd say, "I don't care. As long as they're, as long as they're getting the opportunities to to pursue something they love and can play well." And Jackie, of course, could play every sport well. He could have played probably any of those sports himself. So,
1: before we open uh, up to your to your questions, one more question for the both of you. And we're talking about the game uh, as as it is, uh, the, with salient points going into the black community, uh, the the Latino community over historically over time but let's talk about the game and where you see it headed is the game healthy enough to survive will it be here 100 years from now will it be here 50 years from now talk about the game
3: Neil? Okay. Uh, I have no doubt they will still be playing baseball a hundred years from now. I'm 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 very certain of that. I think right now, you know, in America, you have the four major sports have a lock on the American sports consciousness, and baseball has maybe taken it's it's it used to be number one and maybe number two or even three now today. But I think people will still be playing it. It's it's very economically healthy right now. You certainly Here's can say you. that. Um, so I, I suspect the game will still be played. I think there are a lot of problems that the game could probably, things that they could do better, and I think marketing the game to kids would be a, would be one of them, and I think speeding up the game would be a, another problem. But, you know, in doing the research for for my books, even this, this last book on Campanella, you see the same complaints about baseball in the 1950s. People in the 50s were saying the game is too slow. There's too much money in it. The owners agree. The players are not as good as they used to be. So there's these perpetual cyclical things as far as complaining about the game. But I think baseball is pretty pretty healthy and I do suspect it will be played a hundred years from now, maybe by robots, I don't know. We'll see. see. Let's stick around. What do you think?
2: Well, let me just make a comment referring to RBI. I think the really good thing about RBI, and I think, you know, the best example might be the Harlem RBI program, which is a (coughs) model program, is that they are rebuilding the fabric of communities and investing in these youth, in their education, and giving them goals that are tangible. And to me, that's far more important than the fact that Jimmy Rollins and C.C. Sabathia came out of these programs. I mean, I think from MLB's point of view, it's primarily marketing and PR. Um, as for Major League Baseball, uh, I'm astounded it is doing as well as it is as a business, uh, given its you know head-in-the-sand approach to steroids and other performance-enhancing drugs, its inability to deal with... Um, a kind of revenue sharing that actually does generate competitive balance, um, and I have to say that you know even though I've been writing a lot about it over the years, I'm less and less interested in it. Um, probably the game I enjoy the most is college basketball.
3: Yeah, you live in Pittsburgh, right? right. That's why you're not <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, there is that. I mean, you know, 20 years of the Pirates is tough.
1: Um, yeah, and 14 years of the Orioles. We're, we're catching up with you, I think. Um, let's take it out to the audience. Do we have any questions for our writers? Yes, sir. I can hear you.
4: We can hear you. Well, they're recording Too many people. I... Probably an anomaly here in Baltimore, because half my family 's from Baltimore, the other half from Pittsburgh, <laughs> so the same time that I was lauding uh, Brooks Robinson and uh, McNally and those guys, I was a huge Clemente fan and uh, Stargell and those guys, so you know I was catching flack, and people wanted to clobber me when the World Series went my way and not their way. <laughs> But um, one of the questions that I've got is, having read Clemente's biography and the stuff he went through, not just racially, but with Hispanic element, not speaking much English, and then thinking about Campanella as a catcher, which is, correct me if I'm wrong, the captain of the team, um, that must, you touched on it a little bit, but that must have been really, really difficult, especially if if the pitcher won't take the signals. Were there any other problems he had trying to captain the team when... uh, in his situation at his time?
3: Well, that's actually a very good question, and it's an interesting thing that raises some, a big a big dichotomy between Campy and Jackie Robinson, which I got into in the book. You know, Campy's persona was one who was very friendly, very positive, and very outgoing. And he always said, I have to be that way because I am the catcher, I am the quarterback. I can't be a bump on the log. I can't be like that. Um, whereas someone like Jackie was a much more intense individual, um, a much more brusque individual person. He just didn't, he didn't have that kind of happy-go-lucky personality. And, and mm-hmm. Jackie was just not as well-liked, not only by white players, but by black players. Campy got along better with everyone, with the writers and with, with blacks and with whites. And that was one of the tensions that Jackie and Campy had, that Campy, Jackie felt that Campy was too passive and needed to be more outspoken and needed to talk about political things. It can't be with someone who just loved the game, loved baseball and didn't want to get involved in the politics. But as far as his persona on the field, he had to be, he felt I've got to be liked by the white pitchers that I I throw to. It doesn't mean I'm going to be an Uncle Tom, but I've got to have an outgoing personality and a friendly personality. I can't be the kind of person that Jackie Robinson is. And that was one of the things that that drove them apart. There were a number of things that drove them apart, but that was one of the issues. Yes, sir.
5: from Brooklyn and I was there when Jackie Robinson was running around in Ebbets Field in the Polo Grounds in 1947 and on um, so I saw them all come in with regard to Branch Rickey I think what motivated him was really the necessity to get a pennant winning team well, Brooklyn hadn't won a pennant since 1920 and he was looking around he had Pee Wee Reese he had Dixie Walker Carl Ferrillo bunch of good players, Cookie Um uh, But he needed some more, and he, he decided, hey, this guy, this black guy, he's playing uh, football and baseball out at the university, now I'm going to bring him into Montreal and try him out, and then bring him up to the majors. And I think that was his real motive. And, of course, 1947, they did win the
3: pennant. I, I uh, they agree. They lost the World Series, but... <laughs> I agree with you personally. I think Ricky's humanitarian stance has been very, very uh, overstated. Um, I think he was a religious man when it suited his purposes. He also could be the biggest cheapo on earth for one thing, the way he paid yeah, his he players. <laughs> There's also a story in my book I have, which I've dug up, where, where Ricky supposedly wouldn't sign a player because he was Jewish. So this this talk of Ricky being this great humanitarian, I think he was. A, he was a very shrewd businessman who who outthought. All the other owners and general managers in the game knew that black players integration was coming i think he knew it was going to be coming whether it was 1955 or 45 and he got in there first so i mean that's that's more my take on it than than the charlie thomas story of how he was he was determined that someday he was going to bring a black player into the game i, I think that's been overstated that's just my own personal perspective on it
1: neil at the time that branch ricky was considering contemplating uh, uh, integrating his team were, were other major league owners thinking similar thoughts
3: there was a uh, put campanella back in here again but during the war the commissioner of baseball uh, judge landis it was no no who was certainly no friend to integration but during the war there was a lot of pressure put on put on Major League because we were fighting a war against fascism and the idea that we had this hugely discriminatory organization entity in our own country was no longer being accepted. Right. So a lot of pressure was put on, on Landis during the war. And Landis made a statement in 1942 saying there is no rule against signing black players. It was sort of a disingenuous statement. But he made the statement. Uh, the Pittsburgh, I got Pittsburgh in here. <laughs> the Pittsburgh Pirates owner, William Benzwanger, who was Jewish actually, one of the few Jewish owners in the game, Ben Zwanger knew about the Negro Leagues, he had seen the Crawfords play, he had seen the the, the Grays play, and, and Ben Zwanger said, I will do a tryout. And he met Campanella was one of the three he was going to try out. This was in 1942. Now somewhere from that point to it actually happening, there was a lot of pressure put on Ben Zwanger and he backed out. Now Ricky, uh, not Ricky, I mean Landis might have put pressure on him, the other owners might have put pressure on him. Um, the point the point being, there was no tryout in 42. There's another story about Bill Veck of, of uh, possibly doing it If he had bought the Phillies in, in 42. I think there were other owners who, who, who kind of danced around the issue, but no one had the guts and the brains that Branch Rickey had, and that's what separated him from the rest of them. I mean, he was, he was not wed to the tried-and-true ways of the past, and a lot of Major League officials were and are. I mean, baseball is a very conservative game in some ways. They don't want to change. And a lot of these guys who were running baseball in the 30s and 40s were part of American business. And they had run their businesses in a very conservative fashion. And they didn't hire blacks in their own businesses. You look at the res- were owned by, by Crosley, who had the Crosley radios, and Wrigley, who had the, uh, had the, uh, the gum company, and, and Rupert, who had the beer. I mean, these people weren't hiring blacks in their own organizations. They didn't want to hire them in baseball either. So um, I do think, as I said, Ricky was one of a kind. Uh, had Ricky not come along, I still think iteration would have occurred. I think it would have occurred maybe a little bit later, but Ricky did it, did it right, and saw it through, and I think for that reason we have to give him the credit.
1: And Rob, the the conservative uh, nature of baseball that Neil has been talking about, that really still does exist today uh, in in ownership and top management and things like that. It's, it's a, a white boys, uh, old boys network, isn't it? Well,
2: in that sense, absolutely. I mean, there's one majority-minority owner, Arturo Moreno, of the Angels. Uh, there might be, you know, probably small piece of ownership of the Washington Nationals and maybe some other clubs. Um, you know, baseball, very resistant to change. Um, and I, I think that remains the case today. Um, you know, I would add one more thing to, uh, you know, how the other owners looked at integration. Uh, Some of the owners who were most resistant to integration were also making quite a lot of money renting their ballparks to Negro League clubs at the time. And one of the reasons they resisted integration was they didn't want to lose
1: that revenue. Very interesting. Next question. In the back there, yes. Uh, Could you uh, talk about the, uh, I guess, the role or...
4: He talks about, I guess, uh, the commissioner at that time, Patrick Chandler. Uh, I believe maybe he was, he was one of those that... Thank you. You know, he was one of those, one of the few that, you know, did believe in the integration. I believe he was also from Kentucky. And the uh, second question is, uh, how well did uh, black and white ballplayers get along when they were in the Winter League? Because I know many, of you know, the many professionals... Um, uh, went down to the league back then, and there were a lot of integrated teams back then. So could you address those two? Thank I you.
2: I will take the first one. I'll take, I'll the, take this, the
3: first one. Uh, Chandler, uh, his name was Happy Chandler. Alfred, uh, Happy Chandler, Alfred was his first name. I can't think it Was Alfred? Anyway, uh, Ch- Happy Chandler succeeded Landis. Landis was the first commissioner of baseball. He died in 1944. Chandler came in in 1945. Chandler came in at a time, he didn't have a great reputation as being any friend to the black man he was a senator from Kentucky. He had been governor of Kentucky, and he had upheld segregationist laws while he was there. Having said that, when when he does become commissioner, I would say the best thing he did was that he did not block integration. He didn't do a whole lot. I think he was someone who was very much a megalomaniac about his role in integration and for the rest of his life he always said I did this, this, and this and I, you know, Ricky came to visit me in Kentucky. I think a lot of those stories are probably exaggerated. Um, But he lived a long time, (laughs) because he lived a long time, he told those stories again and again and again. There's really no hard evidence that Chandler did that much. And Bill Veck, who was another owner, a very progressive owner at the time, Veck said this very statement. Veck said the thing that Chandler did the most importantly is that he did not try to stop it. And when Chandler took office, he did say, I don't see there being any rule against it. So he was not an obstructionist to the process once it went along. So I would say that was Chandler's role. Uh, the baseball historians, I think, in some ways have exaggerated him a bit much. And Chandler got himself in the Hall of Fame, I think, based on what he supposedly did for integration. And I think maybe it was not quite as much as he said. But and you can go take a second.
2: <laughs> well, I think, you know, one of the things that Chandler always referred to Um, was a tour, I think, of the Pacific during the war, meeting a lot of African-American soldiers. And, you know, basically the the line that Rick Roberts from The Courier and Afro-American says, that Chandler said was that, you know, if a a black man can die on Guadalcanal in Iojima, he can certainly play Major League Baseball. And, you know, whether or not that's apocryphal, I think that the two arenas in the 20th century that have, well, going back to the Civil War that have done the most uh, for changing racial attitudes have been the military and sport Mm -hmm. in that both in many ways are a meritocracy. Um, When I was doing interviews many, many years ago um, with old timers on the Hill and old timers in the white community, I heard several times a story when the Hill was an integrated community that they would run in and out of each other's homes. And when we got in trouble, we'd get a whooping from our black mama and our white mama. <laughs> now, in, in terms of winter ball, in terms of barnstorming, which white and black players did uh, after the World Series every fall, I mean, I think that there were, you know, some racist SOBs and some pretty progressive guys. And it it's sort of on a case-by-case basis. Uh, you know, there are stories... Uh, of a couple of individuals, and names are escaping me right now, who in winter ball um, couldn't handle black players. Uh, there, there are cases of guys in the Mexican League right after World War II, which I think is a really important part of this whole story. Uh, Hornsby. Well, Roger, Roger Hornsby, who's a manager down there, you know, who just, who, who couldn't play with or against black players. It was just not in their emotional and psychological makeup. On the other hand, uh, you hear about these friendships that form among black, Latin, and white ball players, uh, which are quite enduring. Willie McCovey, the great uh, San Francisco giant who ends up in the Hall of Fame, was having a very hard time when he's in the Dominican Republic playing winter baseball. Felipe Alou moves in with him to make sure he feels at home and to make sure he's not gonna go home. You know, so I think that the one thing about sport is I don't care what your racial stereotypes and attitudes are. Once you're on the field, you know who's good and who isn't good and who wins and and who's better. And I think some people are affected by that in pretty substantive ways.
3: There's one other interesting thing I wanted to add to that. Also, there were some you know, the idea of, of, of different groups getting along together. And there were also some blacks who could not make the transition to playing an integrated ball. Um, one of the most famous examples I put in my, the book on Campanella, you know, when, when Ricky does these signings in 1945, he signs Jackie Robinson first, and the second guy no one remembers is John Wright, who was a pretty good pitcher in the Negro Leagues. And when I talked to Monty Irvin, who was still with us today, the great Monty Irvin, who played in the Negro Leagues and also played in the Major Leagues and became a superstar Um Hall of Famer, Um, Monty Irvin told me, he said, John Wright was a good pitcher, but he, you know, he said the word got around he couldn't play with whites, he just could not, he couldn't do it, he couldn't make that transition. Of course, the pressure was enormous, and playing on all white teams when you're the only black player. Uh, So that was a very important component, too, that ability to be able to mix, you know, especially in the early days of integration, uh, Campanella and Robinson had to have that ability to be able to play on teams when you were going to be the only black guy on there. And that's why they would room them sometimes with, with people like Sam Lacy. They'd have to have someone travel with them. Um, I think Campanella, when he went, when he first went to uh, Montreal, he roomed with a, a Canadian football player. So, I mean, they, they they just, they had to make that transition as well. And I think that's another important facet. Other questions? Yes, ma'am.
6: Uh, are there any efforts by the current black players in major leagues to give the story of the Negro Leagues out to the community? And... I mean, there's so many fascinating stories about the Negro Leagues from first night games and baseball, where because of the Negro Leagues, only organized sports to ever have women on teams. Is there any works for, um in the plans for a movie? Because I think that's the only way to get the story out. I mean, people don't read books like they used to, they don't come to the library to see exhibits. So we do, but um, you know, it's not as mainstream, and I think only if we get you know, a blockbuster movie out, that's the only way to see our history and this great there, legacy. There is we a have. movie in
3: the works. I just read about this just the other day. I think I, I was flipping online and saw some story about there's some, I think it's going to be a TV movie. Uh, I heard it was based, did you hear about this, Rob? Uh, based on uh, Invisible Men, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the Don Rogerson. Don Rogerson's book. That they're going to make sort of. They're going to use some of the stories in that book and make a fictionalized uh, Negro League type thing. Now, whether it ever gets off the ground, I don't know, because for years we've been hearing about there's going to be a Jackie Robinson movie. Spike Lee was trying to get it done. Now I've heard last year that there's going to be one with Robert Redford playing Branch Rickey. Um, but sports movies are sometimes a tough sell in Hollywood. A uh, sports movie with strictly racial dimension might also be a tough movie to push in Hollywood, too. TV movie, I think you have a better chance at it, but I agree with you. To disseminate that kind of information these days, you need uh, that, kind of, that kind of attention. Um, there have been a couple movies made about Negro League stuff. There was an HBO movie made about ten years ago. I think it was called Soul of the Game. It was very fictionalized. In some ways, I think it did more harm than good because some of the, the, the misstatements and the, and the factual stuff in there um and then there was a there was a movie on page made satchel page a tv movie with lou gossett jr i think played him and there was, there was a campanella movie in the 70s so it's been a few here and there but as far as i think today we do have a greater awareness of the negro leagues than ever before major league baseball does have these turn back the clock nights when they wear the negro league uniforms and things like that um and i think some of the players are aware of it i know again speak of philadelphia i see that um, Ryan Howard's very aware of the Negro League heritage, and I, I've heard he's 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 met with the old Negro Leaguers and he talks to them about it and things like that. So it depends on the individual, I guess we could say.
1: You know, it's it is frustrating though to uh, to address your, your the part of your question where you're wondering whether today's athletes, black athletes, uh, might be uh, the banner carriers uh, for this whole awareness thing. They're kids. They don't care about history. They're playing baseball. And, uh, I and
3: that's think white players as well as black that's it's all, the same all thing. players they, yeah. they
1: really do not have any feel or sense for the history of the game um, until after they get out of the game and they start to get a little age on them and then they they become interested in the history because their history <laughs> you know so it, it, it's unfortunate there are a few players who are sensitive to it and and um, do a pretty good job with, with spreading the news but not many a couple okay. more yes ma'am the
6: is there a collaboration between uh, the Major League Baseball and the Negro League Baseball Museum? It seems like both are doing works
3: on this. Is there any collaboration? I can answer that unless you know more, Rob. Because I went, up. you went down there this year too. So we yeah, know just um, so go ahead.
2: <laughs> you know, there's a Negro League Museum in Kansas City, which is really very, very well done. Um, but like all nonprofits these days, hurting. Um, the folks at Cooperstown are cooperative. A lot of um, current and former Major League players have helped that museum stay afloat. Um, You know, dealing with MLB, frankly, is difficult. Uh, I mean, it is a business. Uh, I did a documentary on the Negro Leagues. It, I'm sure, reached far more people on television than the books I've ever, uh, that I've written, have ever reached. But, you know, dealing with MLB... To do that and to see them, to get them to see things as win-win is not an easy proposition.
3: Yeah, and what, just to add to that, what I was told when I went to the, the Negro League Museum, I think Rob and I both spoke there this summer, um, the director was telling me it's not ML, you know, the, the money in, in Major League Baseball is, is, is held by the owners. Major League Baseball in New York, the corporate entity, doesn't have a whole lot of money to give out. And so the Negro League Museum is trying to extract some of that money They get some, but they don't get nearly as much as they would like to get. Because I said, why can't you get more money from Major League Baseball? And that was his answer to me. was that trying to get it from the owners to MLB back to the museum is not that easy.
2: You know, I I would add that there has been a sea change in public awareness of the Negro leagues. Um, You know, I think it might have been 1987 or 97 when they asked a lot of ballplayers about Jackie Robinson. And in those days, they didn't know.
3: Vince Coleman, remember that? Right.
2: <laughs> so maybe that's 87. Or, But now, uh, I think most of them are aware. I think a lot of kids are aware. You know, you see the Negro League's paraphernalia enter into the world of rappers and popular culture. Um, so I think that the work that a lot of people have done, you know, it's reached a tipping point. Uh, but you're right. I mean... You know, if Spike Lee's movie on Jackie would have been done, uh, that would have been great. You know, unfortunately, it's probably not going to be. Um, but that is a way to reach more people a lot more effectively.
1: Yeah, the, the business of baseball is um, fairly cut and dried, uh, and baseball does not, as these gentlemen have stated, really support Cooperstown. How about that? They, uh, they do not pour a lot of money into the historical components of the game, the, the heritage components, as you would hope they would. And it's just very difficult because the owners, those 30 men, really do control the purse strings and they don't necessarily get it. So there's a lot of work to be done there for sure. Yes, sir. Why is it so
4: hard for them
2: to see you know That is a question I've asked for a good 20 years. Uh, Now, I will say that Major League Baseball, uh, when I was working on this documentary, Kings on the Hill, at the end came in and gave me the funds to finish, um, distributed 1,000 copies and study guides to schools. But that was largely because you had a fellow, Len Coleman, as the president of the National League, one of the highest ranking African-Americans in sport at the time. to the degree that they think they can market it and merchandise it and profit from it, they back it. So in Pittsburgh at PNC Park, there's something called Legacy Square, which is a little very nicely done exhibit on the Negro Leagues. Um, I think that you know the reason you see teams wearing the jerseys of the Monarchs and the Eagles and the Grays every season is you know they're marketing to the black community or to nostalgia. I mean, baseball sells nostalgia better than anybody. Um, But, you know, I think it gets back to what Mike was saying about conservative mentality. Uh, And not necessarily ideologically conservative, but just sort of set in their ways. And it is historically the old boys club.
1: A couple more. Do you think the problem also, the things that really grab people about baseball tend to be intangible like there's something poetic and artistic about it that doesn't always fit nicely in the commercial mold, and that's what the commercial people mm. can't necessarily wrap their head around
4: the fact that it's about sand, it's about bad and son playing ball. You know, the idea on a lazy summer afternoon you put your glove on your bike handle and you go riding out to a field to find a pickup game. And that's what a lot of, drew a lot of us to baseball when we were kids. And because they can't wrap their commercial head around this thing get to what it really
2: is that draws people to this, they haven't been able to maybe tap into that You know, I think that, I mean, when I sit down individually, one-on-one with somebody who works for a baseball team with or the organization, I usually like them. You know, they're good people. I think they, they understand that. Um, but they're running these really big corporate enterprises. And I think that that um, often sort of squeezes the soul out
1: of the game. Uh, There's uh, an ongoing situation here in Baltimore. Babe Ruth learned how to play the game on a field, uh, St. Mary's Industrial School, which later became Cardinal Gibbons High School. Cardinal Gibbons High School closed uh, last year. The field is still there where Babe Ruth learned the game. You would think it would be one of the most important pieces of real estate to the game. Major League Baseball came to Baltimore. We met. Um, we did uh, MLB productions the, you know their media center came down and did a documentary on the field but there is they don't they still don't get it they they really haven't made any kind of a de- definitive step to take um, the steps necessary to preserve the field uh, uh, you know where its greatest star learn to play so it, again it's it's a uh, it's corporate it's big business it all gets mixed up and ultimately a lot of good projects don't get accomplished. Any of last question? Yes, ma'am. Here's the last one. I came in a little bit late, so you probably talked about
6: this, but when um, Jackie Robinson moved to the, sorry, moved to the Major League Baseball, what happened to the team that he had a contract with? I mean, uh, were that's they? A,
3: that's a great question. Okay.
6: Sorry. Well, thanks. Um, Were they organized? Was the were the Negro Leagues organized? Well, this is similar structure as Major League.
3: Try to give you a quick answer, and then we're running short on time. But um, and it's a question I I actually raised when I discussed this issue in my sports history class. Uh, Jackie played one year in the Negro Leagues. He played for the Kansas City Monarchs in 1945. And the Monarchs are actually a very well-run team. They financially did quite well, but they did not have their players signed to contracts. They had verbal agreements where basically, or they sent a letter to Jackie Robinson before the season starts, said, Jackie, we will pay you $500 a month, which is what he got that year, but nothing formal. Uh, And a lot of Negro League players operated on that way. Campanella said the same thing. He said, I played for the Elite Giants for 10 years. I never had a contract, but some teams did have contracts. But anyway, when Robinson was signed in the fall of 45, Branch Rickey said, I ain't paying them anything because they don't have a contract on this player. And the question, of course, becomes morally, should he have given the Kansas City Monarchs something for Jackie Robinson? And Rickey's philosophy was, if they're not organized enough to have a contract for him, I will not pay them. And they never received a penny for Jackie Robinson. uh, Rickey also signed Roy Campanella, same way, never paid the Eli Giants a penny. He also signed Don Newcomb of the New York Eagles nothing so we got three great players who won between them five MVPs for nothing at all now there were some Negro League teams who did have contracts and once, once Robinson was signed the other Negro League teams kind of wised up and started to really clamp down and ha- make sure their teams had their, had their, had their players signed to contracts and they did compensate them often for pennies on the dollar very small amounts so. Um, so but in Jackie's case nothing
1: and with that, I think we're going to have to conclude our program. Many thanks to, uh, to Neil and for Rob for coming in to share your uh, your wisdom with us. Thank, thank, thank you, thank you very Judy. Much. Thank, thank all you. of you. And by the way, their books uh, are out there in the in the lobby if you want to pick up a copy. So thanks again.